Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, we're in Psalm chapter 127 today. Uh, you can go ahead and make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that uh, Katie mentioned, it's page 518. And if not, just make your way kind of toward the middle of your Bible, or if you have a digital device, you can cheat and just push the button that says Psalms on it and get there even quicker. Uh, we're in between uh, finishing up a series in the Gospel of John, which we finished a couple weeks back. We're going to start in two weeks from today uh, a series in the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Old Testament prophet. Um, so we're making our way there. But in between those two, we're spending a few weeks in the Psalms. And today we're in Psalm 127. Um, Psalms, what is that? Psalms is a, is a book of songs, a book of poetry for the people of God. And in addition to, to helping shape our worship of God, to giving words to our worship and, and words to our experience of God, it also validates the human experience. That's what we've seen these last couple of weeks. Psalms validates the human experience. All the different kinds of emotions that you and I go through in life, all the kinds of experiences that we might be faced with in life, Psalms gives us companionship in whatever it is that we're going through. And part of the human experience is what I'm going to call the fog. The fog. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about the fog? It's the busyness, the fast pace of life. Uh, it creates this cloud. In that cloud, we're prone to forget who we are. We're prone to forget what's really important about life. And I'm, I'm going to trust that, you, that you're with me when I say the fog, that you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that, because most of you, the vast majority of you in this room, are hardworking and efficient and productive people, right? That's who you are. That's who we tend to be as the people who God has gathered as, at Liberty Church this, this very moment, which also means if you're that kind of person, that you're probably disciplined and you're probably also performance-oriented, you know, you tend to kind of gauge your day on how productive you were. You tend to gauge your day on, you know, did I, did I do well today or did I do poorly? And your, your moods might swing high and low depending on your performance that day. And that also means that when you don't like the way something is, likely for you, your default response will be to just apply more energy and more effort, more elbow grease, to change it, to make it the way you do want it to be. I don't know if that resonates with you. It definitely is my tendency. I definitely see myself in that description. And there are some positive things about that approach to life. You can do a lot that way in life, but there are also some real, real huge and real uh, dangers and pitfalls to living that way. And not least of which is that in the constant busyness, you never come up for air. You never come up for air. You stay immersed in that cloud, in that fog, and in that, you lose sight of ultimate realities. So if any of this resonates with you, then there's a lot for you to appreciate, a lot for us to learn together in what's called the Songs of Ascents. The Songs of Ascents. Psalms 120 through 134 are known as the Songs of Ascents. And in your Bible, you may actually see underneath like the number of the psalm, those words printed there, a Song of Ascents. Okay, what does that mean? It means that these particular psalms were used by the people of God as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship. So there's a double meaning. There's a double meaning. Anytime you see one of these psalms that says a song of ascent, there's a double meaning there. There's the physical ascent. So Jerusalem and the Temple Mount are physically located at a higher elevation than the rest of the terrain around it. So as people went to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, they physically ascended 
to the temple. But also, there's a spiritual meaning to that. As you sing, as you recite these kinds of psalms to God, your heart ascends to Him. As you lift your your heart, as you lift your mind, as you lift your eyes in worship, you're reminded of what's true. And you're reminded of what's important. And in that, the fog begins to clear. You begin to step out of the fog. So I think in a unique way, the songs of ascents are what I would call fog-clearing psalms. You know, all of Scripture has the ability to kind of reorient us that way. I think the songs of ascents does that in a unique way. These are these relatively short songs. The people of God would sing these in succession as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship. And so this is the interesting piece of these. They're they're worship in and of themselves, right? You you recite these, you sing these, you, you proclaim them together. You're worshiping as you do that, but it's also in that preparing you for even more worship. And so because of that, they're saturated with the kinds of truths that refocus our hearts, refocus our minds, and drive us to see the beauty and the worth of Jesus. So Psalm 127 is right in the middle of these 15 songs of ascents. And particularly for the hardworking people who tend to trust their own ability, their own efforts more than anything else, Psalm 127 is filled with life-giving and fog-clearing perspective. So follow along with me as I read this. I'm going to read all six verses, five verses of uh, Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we're grateful to you that in the worship hymnal that you've given to your people that they used for centuries and still use today, you have these 15 songs of ascents that really quickly fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds on you and help us step out of the fog that we find ourselves in at times. God, I pray for the men and women who find themselves in the fog today, who come here overwhelmed and busy and disoriented, who come here today struggling to to see ultimate realities, to see who they are, to see who you are, to see what you've called us to and invited us to in life. I pray that a psalm like Psalm 127 would just meet us right where we're at, would open our eyes to to the worth of you and to the worth of what you've done for us. Meet us, work in our hearts, Holy Spirit, through your word. uh, And we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's the, the big idea of Psalm 127. You and I can do a lot, but we can never do enough. We can do a lot, we can never do enough. And digging a little bit into the backstory of this psalm helps make that idea even more vivid. So in your Bible, it might say there, like it does in mine, of Solomon, next to this psalm's title. And that means that either King Solomon wrote this, or somebody else took pieces of like the wisdom literature that Solomon wrote in other places, like things like Proverbs, 
and just compiled that together and made a psalm out of it and attributed it to him. Regardless of that, Psalm 127 and really all of these 15 songs of ascents were brought into the worship life of the Israelite people after they returned from exile in Babylon. So quick recap of that. 587 B.C., Jerusalem is conquered by the Babylonians. They come, they destroy the city, they break down the walls, and they send a lot of the people, the Israelite people, to exile in Babylon. Fast forward about 50 years from there, and the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian Empire and officially ends the Babylonian exile. People start to trickle back toward Jerusalem. But it's actually not another 90 years, an additional 90 years from that point, that Nehemiah and another group of exiles come back to Jerusalem and begin this process of repairing the walls and eventually rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. From the best that we can tell, it's in that era when Nehemiah is coming back to Jerusalem when these songs of ascents become part of the regular worship of the people of God. So I just want you to picture the scene because it helps. It helps us understand what's written here in Psalm 127. The walls are broken down. They're broken down. The city is in ruins. The people who are there are vulnerable to attack. The population of the city of Jerusalem is a fraction of what it was before the Babylonians conquered the city. And there are enemies all around them, you know, foreign and domestic, whose interest it is to keep the walls of the city broken down, to keep the people of Israel compromised and weak. So this image of building and this image of a watchtower, it's particularly relevant in Psalm 127. These people who are in Jerusalem who would be singing these songs together, they need protection from the enemy, which means you need to build some stuff, and it means you need to to have a lookout. And because the population is also decimated, the picture of children here is also really relevant. You know, you might, if we were reading that, at first glance, you look at Psalm 127, and you might be like, what in the world does the second half of the psalm about kids have to do with the first half? It doesn't, it doesn't intuitively make sense, necessarily, until you get the context that it was written in. There's a lot more cohesiveness here than it might originally appear, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But the setting here in Psalm 127 is a picture of what I'll call diligent dependence. Diligent dependence. So the Israelites, they build the walls, they build up the houses with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. And the work that they do is constant and it's urgent and it's important. It's always with a view that the enemy might be coming like in five seconds and we're going to have to drop the shovel and pick up the sword and fight. And as it details in the book of Nehemiah, the people pursue this work with diligence and with a lot of skill. But even in their hard work, even in their diligence, they aren't able to secure Jerusalem. Ultimately, God has to be the one to do that. And and they really have no way to kid themselves into thinking anything else. It's these extreme circumstances in life, both for the Israelites in this moment and for us today, that force an honest and realistic assessment. You know, so why are the walls broken down here in the first place? It's because they've been destroyed by a more powerful enemy. You know, God gave the city of Jerusalem into the hands of the Babylonians, and they were conquered and defeated. Because there was a day that these walls were actually built up, and they were really strong. And there was a day that there were many watchmen on the towers looking out for the enemy. And there was a day when the population of Jerusalem was booming, 
And it was easy for them to recruit an army of full-bodied, able people to defend the city. But none of that was sufficient to actually protect the city. God gave them into the hands of the Babylonians, and the Babylonians conquered it. So history, and really their own intimate personal history and experience, has taught them that a rebuilding effort and a watching effort and a repopulating effort in and of itself will never be sufficient to rebuild Jerusalem. God has to be in this. God has to be in this. He has to be the one that ultimately is doing the protecting and the defending. And as diligent as these builders and watchmen are, they are always going to be dependent on God. They can do a lot, and they are doing a lot, but they can never do enough. And just like them, we, by design, will always be dependent upon God. There's never a day that comes when like, we finish that part of our lives. And we're no longer dependent on him. We're always dependent on him. That's really here in Psalm 127. That is the, the refocusing kind of truth that, that compels our worship in this psalm. And it's meant to cut through the kind of fog that you and I experience in life. When you and I are busy, and on top of that, when our tendency is to just apply more time and energy to be the solution to our problems, we get stuck in the fog. And what we need to see from places like Psalm 127 is that that's actually not primarily a behavior problem or a personality problem. It's primarily a worship problem. Functionally, to look to ourselves as the solution is to, and we don't call it this, but it is to worship ourselves. It's to look to ourselves as ultimate, to our efforts as ultimate. Worship regardless of who or what we're worshiping in that moment. It's all about who is ultimately in control. Who is the one that we are looking to who reigns over everything, who has control of everything. So the genuine worship of God is never about taking 15 psalms or 115 psalms and just kind of in a rote and and contrived way reciting some words. It's always found, genuine worship always comes through recognizing our complete dependence upon God. Now, the other thing, then, that we see in Psalm 127, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is that there is so much more to be gained in our dependence than there is from our hard work. And that's just really counterintuitive, particularly in our culture. There's so much more to be gained from our dependence than from our hard work. Our culture doesn't teach that. Our culture doesn't reward that. But we see here in Psalm 127 two beautiful examples of the benefits of dependence that our hard work could actually never gain for us. And it's these. Because you you can do a lot, but you can never do enough, it means you can rest without anxiety, and it means you can enjoy the good gifts of God. Rest without anxiety and enjoy the good gifts of God. So first, this idea of diligent dependence means resting without anxiety. When we rely primarily on our own efforts, you know, if you're prone to do that, if you have a tendency to do that like I do, one of the byproducts is a massive amount of restlessness and a massive amount of anxiety. Anybody else experience anything like that? We can, yeah, see, we, can, we can pretend we're not Presbyterian in those moments and respond. That's okay. I can take that. For me, I had glimpses of it prior to this, but I really started to notice that in my own life 
during my freshman year of college. I was in a new city, all new people. Uh, combine that with you know, a workload from classes, student life, being involved in campus organizations. And I had these moments where I was really overwhelmed and really filled with anxiety in a new way that I'd never experienced before in my life. And if you've ever experienced something similar to that, you know that regardless of what you look like on the outside in that moment, on the inside, you're frantic. You're frantic. You're hurried. Uh, you're worried. You're constantly wondering if you're going to be able to keep it all up in the air, keep all the plates spinning. And I remember this one particular day, the fog that that created for me. I remember one particular day where the truth of God broke through that fog through the most unlikely of voices. Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. Okay, you, you always think, I always think it's going to be some like, really profound source that this comes from, you know. I was studying the Minor Prophets or this amazing speaker or author. Nope, Warner Brothers cartoon character, Bugs Bunny is where the grace of God met me that day. Uh, my resident director's apartment was just off of the lobby of our dorm, and on his door, uh, he had this poster of Bugs Bunny. And I can still very vividly picture this poster. Bugs is standing there with his half-eaten carrot, as he tends to do in his cartoons, and there's this quote bubble over his head, and it says this, Relax, Doc. It'll all get done. Relax, Doc. It'll all get done. And I remember feeling like really calmed by that in that moment. And I look back on it now, I'm like, that was kind of silly. I was like an 18-year-old, like finding comfort in Bugs Bunny, you know. There's nothing inherently biblical about what Bugs says in that quote, but it is a window into the very same reality that Psalm 127 highlights. And that is that franticness and anxiety and restlessness is vanity. It's useless. So relax. But where Bugs, in that quote, leaves it up to some kind of impersonal random chance, you know, it'll all get done. Well, what the heck does that mean? Does that make me really feel good about it? Psalm 127 says, hey, you can never do enough, but actually it's not up to you anyway. God is the one who's in control of this, so relax. See, diligent work, hard work isn't bad. And actually, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that talk about the value and the worth of actively engaging and actively working at all these kinds of great pursuits in life. But frantic and anxious hard work is functional disbelief that God is in control. We might believe that. We might say that we, that we believe God's in control. Frantic, anxious hard work is functional disbelief that, that God's in control. We don't really believe it in practice in that moment. And so it's vain to frantically keep yourself awake for 24 hours a day. As the psalmist says, rising up early and going to bed late. It's vain to constantly put in more hours and more energy and more effort. You know, even if you and I were somehow able to create an additional 100 hours of time every week and use that 100 hours of extra time every week for the rest of our lives, all of that compared to the complete Work and rule and reign of God is but a drop in the ocean. And therefore, it's vanity and it's useless. So the psalmist here says that it's vanity to eat the bread of anxious toil. You know what image that's picking up on from the Bible? It's picking up on the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. So back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, they sin against God, and the curse of sin 
enters the world, and it corrupts all of the good things that God has created. It fractures that. Part of that curse means that work is now going to be difficult. Work was part of life before the fall, but now work is going to be difficult. So Genesis 3.19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So stay with me on this. To, to eat the bread of anxious toil is to live your life as though sin was the last word in the story. To eat the bread of anxious toil is to live as though sin got the last word. And it doesn't get the last word. Why? Because God redeems. Because God redeems. And how much more do we get to see that today, looking back on the complete fulfillment of God's redemption that comes through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? These people who originally used these psalms didn't have that full of a picture. They had some. They had some of a picture of God's redemption. We have even more of that. And to eat the bread of anxious toil is to functionally miss the redemption that has been accomplished by Jesus. That franticness, that anxiety that's a result of sin, to to not look past that is to miss that God redeems. And we never want to give that anxiety and that restlessness caused by sin more weight than the power of God's redemption. So on the practical level, Let's not fall into the ditch on either side of the road here. When we think about diligent dependence, there's a ditch on either side of the road. Dependence without diligence is what I'll call poor stewardship. You know, it's laziness. It's an underestimation of the real gifts that God has given you, the real opportunities God's given you to contribute and to use your life for something that's substantial, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of other people, for the sake of the good of the world. But on the other side, the other ditch, diligence without dependence is arrogance, right? It's an overestimation of yourself, and it's functionally placing yourself at the center, you know, in control of your life rather than worshiping God. So instead of those ditches, we need to recognize how dependent we really are on God. We recognize the the drop in the ocean that our efforts contribute compared to his. And then, and only then, be diligent. Then be diligent with that deep and functional belief in God's complete control over everything. And the psalmist here then takes this to a very practical expression of this in talking about rest and sleep. And so here's what, here's what um, diligent dependence looks like at the end of any given day. At the end of any given day, diligent dependence says, today I have pursued faithfulness to God. And there's some days when you've fallen so far short of that that the only way you can complete that thought is to say, and thank God there's tomorrow, and I can try again tomorrow. But you can conclude by saying, thank God that he's the one who builds the house. Thank God that he's the one that watches over the city. It's not up to me. There's other days when you say, today I have pursued faithfulness to God, and I have nailed it today. Today's been a great day, and I've done that well. But you know what? Your response is exactly the same. Thank God that he's the one who builds the house. Thank God that he's the one who watches over the city because it means my efforts and labors are not in vain. Instead, they are caught up into his complete and sovereign control over everything. And on either kind of day, 
because God is the one who builds the house, because God is the one who watches over the city, you can put your head on the pillow at night and you can sleep with a full heart and with a clear conscience, not because you've nailed it, not because you've done great today, but because, like it says, God gives to his beloved sleep. God gives to his beloved sleep. And rest and sleep are some of the best litmus tests for how much we actually trust God. And Psalm 127 says that because this life in this world is so much more in God's hands than it ever will be or is in mine, we can rest without anxiety as this demonstration of our faith, of our dependence in him. Now second, diligent dependence, another one of the benefits of that is that we get to enjoy the good gifts of God. We get to rest without anxiety. We get to enjoy the good gifts of God. The second half of this psalm It's all about children. It's all about children. And it's actually a lot more connected to the first half than it might initially seem. The population of Jerusalem here has been decimated by defeat and by exile for 140 years. It's been 140 years since the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem at this point when the psalm is being utilized. So in addition to rebuilding the wall, in addition to having watchmen on the lookout, there's just the practical reality that Jerusalem needs more people. It needs more people who are going to populate and defend that city. What's one of the best ways to do that? Have a lot of kids. Have a lot of kids. And apparently, Liberty Church is pursuing this exact same strategy right now. (laughs) Repopulate and defend the Elks Lodge Nursery is, like I guess, the only application of that. Children in Scripture are one of the most tangible pictures of the blessing of God. It shows up all throughout the narrative of, of Scripture. But children are also a picture of diligent dependence, just like the first half of this psalm was. You know, how do children come into being? You're involved in the process if you have a kid. I don't know how long it's been for you since eighth grade health class, but a man and a woman are very much actively involved in the process of a child coming into life. At the same time, having children isn't ultimately up to you, is it? We're dependent on God in this, too. And some of you guys know that really well from your own experience. Some of you have had a completely unexpected pregnancy. You thought you were done having kids, and surprise, you're having another one. Or you weren't ready to have kids, and God thought otherwise. Some of you, on the other hand, have tried to have a kid month after month, and nothing's happened. Some of you have have gotten pregnant, but then had a miscarriage. There are times when you do everything that there is to do in your power, and it still doesn't happen, and it still doesn't work. And in those moments, you have no idea why, and life doesn't seem fair, and And God doesn't seem good. But one thing in those moments becomes undeniable. And it's that you and I are limited. You and I are limited and we aren't ultimately in control. We are dependent people. So just like the builders, just like the watchmen practice this diligent dependence by resting and sleeping, parents or people who want to become parents 
they can practice diligent dependence by rejoicing in children as a good gift of God. So you can imagine in this moment, in this historical setting, the pressure that Israelites, men and women, would feel to procreate, to have kids, to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. But here's the question. Are kids merely like a civic responsibility? Is it merely our duty to have kids? Or are they good gifts of God? And the psalmist goes out of his way to make sure that even in a moment of this intense pressure to procreate, God's people see this not as their obligation, but as their joy, as his good gift. And this is where there's such an opportunity for you and I as Christians to be a winsome and a gracious counterculture in our world today. Our culture at large tends to separate things that God's design holds together. So our culture tends to separate sex and marriage and marriage and kids as if they were completely unrelated things. So sex can become transactional rather than covenantal. And marriage can become about what makes each partner happy rather than what's about God's glory and for the flourishing of all humankind. And kids basically just become like the next step for after like a puppy if you're ready to take on more responsibility. But in the design of God, those things are held together. Those things are held together. They're good gifts of God that are meant to be enjoyed together. It's good to enjoy sex within the covenantal bond of marriage. It's good for marriage to be the landscape in which we get to co-create with God human life. How crazy is that? Kids aren't a shackle, as some in our culture would lead us to believe. Kids aren't a necessary evil or like an obligation just to prolong and sustain human life and the human race. Children are a blessing and a reward, as the psalmist says. They are good gifts of God. And here's where it connects. Recognizing our dependence only magnifies our appreciation of the gift. Recognizing our dependence only magnifies our appreciation of the gift. And I think that's why, generally speaking, the couple who tries for month on end to have a child but can't, values children as the good gift of God that they are more than like the 17-year-old couple that accidentally gets pregnant on their first date. It's because the more we recognize our dependence on God, the more we enjoy his gifts. The more we recognize our dependence, the more we enjoy his gifts. So maybe for you right now, there's a very specific application here to children. Or maybe that has nothing to do with you and where you're at in life right now, and that's okay too. Maybe it's one of the other good gifts of God. Friendship, time, abilities and skills that he's given you to use. Okay, whatever it is, here's what we take away from this. Lean into your dependence and let God open your eyes to the goodness of the gifts that he's put in your life. Lean into your dependence and in leaning into your dependence, let God open your eyes to see just how much he's given you, his truly good gifts that he's given you. And if if you and I ever somehow convince ourselves that we have those things, that we've brought those things about by our own efforts, our own work, then we won't enjoy them near as much as if we actually see that they've come from God and we're dependent on Him. So personally, uh, Psalm 127 has, has really just hit me right where I'm at. God's really used it in my life these past you know, week or two. Uh, we're in a season of a lot of change for our church. And so it's a moment for me uh, as the pastor to to be diligently working. But in my work and in my own tendency to trust my efforts 
and be this, look to my efforts as the source and the solution for my problems, it's also a moment for me to remember that it's God who builds the house. It's God who watches over the city. And there's even very direct parallels in the New Testament where New Testament authors refer to the church as a house and as a city. It's God who builds the house. It's God who builds the city through or in spite of the people who are part of it. So I can rest, and you can rest, and I can sleep, and you can sleep without anxiety, trusting in the sovereign control of God. It's also a moment for for me and Shay personally to enjoy the good gifts of God, and specifically the good gift of of children. And we're, as many of you know, we're five weeks out from welcoming a second uh, daughter into our family. And so Psalm 127, in both of these cases, just I felt like this was a gift of God to me personally. Um, whether any of that specifically resonates with you, I'm sure a lot of the specific circumstances for you in your life are different. But may you also, in Psalm 127, see God's invitation to these very same things. Recognize your dependence on Him. Work diligently, but only with this full confidence in God's control. You know, because we can never do enough, because the entirety of our lives is in God's hands and not ours, and because we are the beloved people of God, may we rest and sleep without anxiety, and may we enjoy the good gifts of a truly good God. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. And Jesus, even as you said, there is no one good but God. And you give us good gifts. And so our dependence is our good more than our hard work could ever be. And I pray that whatever our culture would teach us about earning things through hard work, whatever our own hearts would say about how it's up to us and it's up to our efforts to create a destiny for ourselves and create a future for ourselves, I pray God, that we would see it's actually better that we're completely dependent on you. That's our good, and that's our highest joy, and that's our highest satisfaction in life. We need you. We need you. We're dependent upon you, God. And we pray that we would see that, that we would lean into our dependence, that we would functionally believe that you're in control, that it would lead us to rest that it would lead us to truly enjoy your good gifts in a way we never could if we were frantically trying to attain them ourselves. And as we come to this table, I pray that we would see both the picture of our dependence. We could not, so Jesus had to, and Jesus did. But we would also see the goodness that our dependence is. You, you care for us in a way that we never could for ourselves. Jesus has accomplished redemption. And by faith in him, we get caught up into your saving work. Meet with us, Jesus, as we come. We pray this in your name. Amen.